Hello and welcome to Cybertech Talks, a podcast where we bring cybersecurity experts together for a conversation. This episode, our experts delve into all things SBOM, which stands for a Software Bill of Materials, sharing their experience with SBOMs, lessons learned as practitioners, and they provide insight into tools, their non-negotiables, and where an SBOM can help. We're pleased to be joined by John Geeter, CTO at Archivist, Tony Yusida Velez, FirstBright CEO and Vice Chair of Crest Penetration Testing Focus Group Subcommittee, Caleb Davis, Senior Manager in Emerging Technologies at Protivity, and Matthew Freilich, Director at Protivity. We hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm Matthew Freilich. I'm a director out of Protivity's uh, Philadelphia office. I work in the uh, Emerging Technologies group where I specialize in uh, medical and embedded security. Um, I've been working in offensive and defensive security for about 15 years, and uh, I uh, uh, spend a great deal of time uh, trying to figure out uh, the best ways to secure uh, devices, components, uh, and, and systems uh, in, uh, in the world. I'll, uh, I'll go next. Uh, my name is Caleb Davis. I'm a senior manager at Productivity. I work alongside Matt, uh, specializing in all things embedded security. So from you know the, the entire stack in terms of uh, security, both offensive and defensive, as well as throughout the, the, the product development lifecycle. Fantastic. Um, so John Gita, I'm Chief Product and Technology Officer at Archivist, um, and also co-chair of the IETF uh, Supply Chain Integrity, Transparency and Trust Working Group um, and at Archivist um, our mission is to help both secure and speed up digital supply chains um, with high evidence artifacts and, uh, and documents. How did you have, how did you get into um, S-bombs? That's an interesting question. I have a feeling that our answer is going to be very different to most of the listeners. I could start. I mean, I was, I was an embedded uh, software developer, and we we got into the realm of uh, you know understanding the the cybersecurity impact of the code that we were writing, um, which I think inevitably leads to you know the the code that you're inheriting, um, and you know the the entire cybersecurity threat or uh, or debt rather that uh, you inherit just developing software. Um, so obviously that led to you know, SBOM type efforts, although they weren't probably called SBOM at the time, um, but it was, you know, much different than it is now, I think, right? It was all um, early on into a project, you know, a large Excel sheet containing the, the library, the version, et cetera, and we never touched it again. Um, so that, that, that's at least my experience. So I'll jump in and say that, you know, um, you know, VersaWrite's a very adversarial uh, focused company. You know, we focus on uh, trying to exploit, you know, software. So um, at, before there was SBOM, it was just simply, you know, for us, you know, a very attractive attack vector is looking at under, um, uh, under, under cared for uh, libraries or binaries or open source packages that would provide a way in, right, to be able to gain control or a footing within the software or an application or a platform. So um, we realized that the, the the need to be able to have more of a functional responsibility around what's going into software, what's going into environments needs to happen. So now that's coming out with this very popular term called SBOM, but um, you know, before my days in security and IT, you know, and as a developer, you know, I think that uh, many developers and product engineering teams 
had just simply, you know, a time to make a donuts mentality where that means, you know, what do I need to do in order to build out my software? And they didn't really, you know, to Caleb's point, you know, they kind of like just forgot about something once it was implemented into a broader product. So, you know, it's good to see that, uh, you know, it's 2022 and we're now waking up by necessity to the, to the reality is that as you know, uh, what goes in, you know, could actually be leveraged against uh, any product or organizations. It's so important to, to bring that to, to mind now. Yeah, so for, for me early on in my career, when I was a pen tester first starting out, um, the I didn't have any concept of SBOM, uh, uh, but I did understand the concept of going after vulnerable software. Um, as I grew in my career, um, one of the things that really stood out to me was um, the FDA published uh, some uh, cybersecurity guidance where they referenced something called CBOM, which was a cybersecurity bill of materials, where SBOM was one of the components. And uh, I think that was really the first time that I really started to understand the need for indexing this type of information. Uh, and some of the customers we worked with uh, did something somewhat similar called SOUP, which was a software of unknown providence. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very similar to SBOM but it's uh, not as uh, full-featured, I guess I would say. Yeah, no, that's cool. So I, I figured, yeah, we, we all have history there. I mean, my history is, you know, I've been in cybersecurity over 20 years, worked on some pretty big sort of infrastructure, cyber-physical systems as well. And um, yeah, you, you, you come to these very practical views of security when you're trying to make physical stuff in the real world actually safe. Um, and simply putting a magic key somewhere doesn't necessarily solve the real-world threats. Um, so I also have come to this you know, from years and years of just frustration and experience that things weren't working properly. Um, but then, so it's interesting to me, and I don't know what your experiences have been, but we've been following and really trying to support a lot of these uh, regulatory uh, issues uh, around SBOM. There's been a lot of flurry. There was a lot of support. Uh, it was all going really well. And then, um, of course, we had uh, some, some letters of demurment fairly recently of, of, of people who are saying, hey, hold, hold, hold on a minute, maybe, maybe we want to think a bit more about this. Maybe we, maybe we want to do it a different way. Maybe we want to wait till everything's kind of perfectly finished. So um, how, do you, how do you feel about that? As people who've seen the value of S-bombs as a thing, how, how are you feeling about that, that progression, that the, uh, the regulatory pressure good, bad, um, just wait and it'll be fine. Well, I, I, you know, I can jump in first, you know, it's, it's sad is if I could sum it up with, with one, you know, adjective, it, it would be, you know, depressing and sad that regular, you know, regulation is the thing that, you know, continues to drive change in cybersecurity or just product resiliency. And, um, you know, I think that for, for product software manufacturers, um, the, the, you know, nothing is really translated to the point where they're like, they feel an ownership for product stewardship and the information that that product supports. So um, from a business standpoint, it makes complete sense to be able to have the forethought to think about, I need to make sure that I have resiliency in my software and my product against various forms of threats and underlying attacks so that my product can be more sustainable and have less adverse reputational damage if something were to happen. Um, you know, from an adversarial standpoint, again, going back to kind of my view on uh, from an adversarial point of view, it's looked upon as an attack surface, right? So the attacker, you know, it, it, the product owner needs to be able to mitigate the attack surface as best as they can and to be able to look at that um, 
preemptively versus reactively because there's someone waving, you know, uh, a ruler saying that you have to do this or otherwise you're going to find some penalties is, again, sad. But, you know, the reality is today in cybersecurity, the wheels of change continue to turn through regulation and law and penalties and fines. And that's just the uh, sad truth, right? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think it's undeniable the uh, the benefit in understanding, continuously understanding the the software that is composing your system and the the threat surface that it that introduces. Um, I think in terms of halting, um, you know, and kind of taking a step back away in terms of a, the regulatory side of things. It, it makes sense when you start to think about the impact and when you start to think, I think we all have that development background, you know, what does it actually mean to understand all of the, all of the software and all of the dependencies that are, you know, not only throughout the, the stack, but also throughout the product development life cycle. So start talking about, you know, manufacturing, you know, things that are, would be deemed OT or ICS or something like that. Like, how does that impact your, your ability to produce software and devices uh, potentially, right? There, there are a tremendous amount of vulnerabilities that exist there, and it's somewhat disjointed in terms of the you know the development teams versus manufacturing teams. So how do we how do we close that gap as an industry is a is a difficult problem to solve. Agreed. Yeah, and so let let's maybe um, turn the page. I think this was a good initial backdrop. Um, let's talk about some operational recommendations um, based upon lessons learned that we can you know share with the audiences. You know so putting on our product engineering hats um, and envisioning that we're part of a startup that we all pertain to, how do we operationalize, you know, a security bill of materials that makes sense operationally, that's sustainable, that follows an, you know, agile workflow? Um, and is that something that, uh, you know, and, and what are some of the um, tools that we could use you know, realistically? So. We can go around the horn and kind of share our own personal takes on that. Yeah, well, I'll take it. Um, I think so. I, I like the way you've phrased the question because I think it is the full package. It's not just the software. Um, so from my from my experience and the things that I'm trying to enable now, um, I think we should see this thing as an opportunity. I mean, a, a, a lot of folks question the the tools, and that's obviously a thing. Um, but the opportunity here is for people to take control of their own risk, right? There's fundamentally what we're trying to do is enable people to see more about what's coming in through their digital supply chains so they understand what to do with it. And it's like, if, so the, the S-bomb is a kind of simple example because you wake up and Log4j is all over the news and, and so you're responsible for a data center. You say, damn it, where can I find the, all the Log4js in my infrastructure? And you look around and you're just staring at a sea of black boxes and you don't know. So even if you wanted to take action, you couldn't. And so yeah, that's an example of where an S-bomb would help because you, know, you can bring it in uh, and you can instantly see which of your things are affected and you can make your own decision before the vendor issues a patch or advice or whatever else. So that's definitely cool. Um, and yeah, that is a little bit of a ways away in terms of tooling and stuff because we haven't got user-friendly or operator-friendly um, views to that. Not to say there aren't any. Um, there are a, a bunch of great DevSecOps companies out there who will give you a bit of a dashboard who are starting to do this. But it's new. But the thing with general visibility and the spirit of what SBOM is looking at is um, that you want to be able to also spot the unexpected stuff, right? It's not just one poisoned package or one really bad zero day. 
there are plenty of pairs of good bits of software which interact negatively when they're put together in the same box. And that's something that the vendor or the writer of, the, of either of those two things could never tell you and would never know. But this kind of visibility and transparency and putting, seeing it not as a burden, but as an opportunity for the receiving party to take control, um, that's actually where I see the, the best benefit of this. And for that, there are tons of tools around. I used to do this all the time because the products that I built were common criteria and NIST evaluated. You have to have reproducible builds. You had to have all this visibility. You had to have the configuration management stuff. CM tools are really great at this already. So I think um, if practitioners are really looking to get a head start, look at the industry guys, not necessarily the software, but industry guys who have been doing this kind of configuration management for years. And there's an awful lot of, um, of learning there that can be applied. I was gonna say, just to add to that, to get, you know, I think John, it makes sense to take it higher level than, than software. I, I will add just, you know, on, on the software side, um, I think they're, what we run into a lot, what I've ran into is the ability to understand how to create a, a software build materials from like the source code is vastly different beyond when you go from, you know, one language to another or a particular framework or, or package uh, resource or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are there are definitely gaps, you know, where things don't exist right now um, in, in the ability to create uh, Cyclone DX files. And I think that there, you know, depending on your build process, there are a lot of dependencies in the build process that could uh, inhibit your ability to actually create uh, an SBOM effectively. I will say that, you know, Cyclone DX, they have the uh, Cyclone DX tool center. Um, they do a great job indexing all the tools that are available, and they also uh, tag it based on various languages and, and whatnot. So that's, I think that's a good starting point if you're, you know, a software developer and you're trying to say, you know, how do I even create an SBOM to start with our source code? Um, I think that'd be a good place to go. Yeah, and, you know, as a OWASP chapter leader for Atlanta, I definitely got to do a shout out to that project, you know, for Cyclone DX, because now they have an API that you can interface with in order to be able to see, you know, what sort of um, things you should be concerned about, you know, in your, in your software. But, you know, going back to John's point, you know, it's, yeah, it's more than just the software. It's, you know, there's, there's other components that go into overall product, especially in SaaS, you know, the platform, you know, frameworks, you know, to your point, Caleb, where, you know, there's, there's, there needs to be that same level of introspection, but, um, I'm big into maturity models, and I think that um, you know a crawl. We we need to have a crawl, walk, ro uh, a run approach, and especially if you're out there listening and you're maybe a product manager, right? Um, how do you what's what's ground zero look like? What what does a crawl version look like? There's some simple native things that you can do within your own native environment to be able to have a manifest, which uh, really is what it boils down to, a manifest of what is included in you know your product. Um, you know, again, at different levels to John's point, you know, not just looking at software. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say on that is it's simply, you know, I'm a big proponent of, of threat modeling and application threat modeling. Stage two of the process for attack stimulation and threat analysis is actually technology enumeration. And if you think about the, the, the you know, that, that term, it sounds, it's a fancy term for just simply listing out what are you running? You know, is it, that's, that's what it boils down to. So there's native tools within different um, environments or platforms or frameworks that can allow you to know what you're running. And of course, knowing when to run these tools at different points, you know, development, testing, especially the build process, 
you want to make sure that you have that level of assurance so that you don't run this whole process of of um, understanding what your attack surface is during the wrong phase. And then you have other changes happening to your environment that gets packaged into your product. And then you have a false sense of confidence that you actually did proper SBOM analysis when you actually left a lot of things out. So that's super important to take into consideration. Yeah, that was uh, kind of echoing a portion of that. Um, the I think there's a, uh, a desire for some organizations to try and do an SBOM kind of immediately to show that they're doing something from a cyber hygiene perspective, but they're doing it from, or try, attempting to do it from like a point in time perspective. Um, and, and sort of like to some of the points that have been brought up, it's SBOM should be part of the build process, the development process. And doing something point in time is, it's not a futile exercise, but it's not a productive exercise because you're going to need to do this every time you make some kind of iteration or change to your software, your underlying system and things of that nature. So uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mindset that you need to be doing these kinds of things throughout the process. Uh, so it is, it's really important to make sure that for devices to uh, really have a, uh, um, a consistent and usable SBOM that is part of that build process. Yeah, so I want to jump in before we before we forget the point, Tony, just to hijack your um, your plug for maturity models. I would like to quickly plug uh, a document that um, I I helped to author and edit in the industry uh, industry internet um, uh, consortium and the digital twin consortium. So we just recently published um, a security maturity model for digital twins, uh, which has some of that very actionable practitioner um, stuff in it. So it, at one sense, you know, people might find it a bit frustrating because it doesn't give you absolute concrete um, tools that you can use or command lines that you should run to be secure, uh, in, in air quotes. Um, but what it does do is it lists out a kind of scale of maturity to say, uh, a mature organization will typically have these kinds of processes in place. A mature organization will typically have this range of uh, either process artifacts or suppliers or supply chain depth in scope and just help you kind of understand where you should be thinking. So if, if you're really at a loss, I, I completely agree. Those maturity models are really nicely written for getting you started from, um, from cold. I just wanted to plug that in there for the listeners before I forget. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so in terms of like, you know, what should be included in a manifest, like if you're again, writing, you know, software or building out a product that's, you know, software sitting on, you know, uh, a platform and maybe in a, in a, uh, a uh, embedded OS, right, that is hosting software. Uh, what are some non-negotiables that everyone here as a group uh, would say, you know, uh, and recommend that should be a part of a manifest, you know? Um, for example, you know, versions of software, right? Obviously, that's kind of a no-brainer right there. Um, but simple things like, you know, component name, um, you know, maybe like hash values, um, something that can uh, uniquely distinguish, you know, a binary or a component within the software that can be, you know, researched or mapped or done some level of automation threat intel as a parameter to be able to say, what, what do I have out there that maybe has some known exploits or uh, what sort of uh, known advisories do I have, you know, that's tied to this particular hash or, or whatnot? What are some thoughts around the group on what are some non-negotiable elements that should be part of this, you know, manifest? 
Yeah, so um, I think that uh, a lot of the items that are enumerated by the NTIA uh, were a really excellent starting point. So they had supplier name, component name, version of a component, unique identifiers, dependency relationships, author of the SBOM data, and timestamp. Um, some of those seem more important potentially than others. Uh, but I think one of the things that's really interesting is that the dependency relationship component of this is something that is, is really, really valuable. And it's, it allows for instances where a compound element, so um, either uh, a third-party piece of software that has multiple contributing libraries, for example, that you then integrate into your own software, uh, making sure that that kind of content is in there allows that up and downstream uh, uh, following of potential vulnerabilities to happen much more smoothly. If you're only going to be putting in the things that either you authored or the direct name of an application or the direct name of a library without including some of that additional content, uh, it, it can still allow for um, defensive measures to be taken in time, but I think it, it slows that process down. So the more granular that type of content can be within an SBOM, I think the more valuable it will be. Um, I am also personally a proponent of, of the, the CBOM kind of perspective, where it also includes things like the, the firmware of the, the chips that are on a particular device, for example, and even lists of the, of the chips themselves, as we've found uh, that there are uh, definitely vulnerabilities that are associated with a Wi-Fi or a Bluetooth chipset that affect, you know, your iPhone or a computer or, or some something else that could be on a factory floor or a medical device. So um, I would love to see that kind of thing, but I believe that that's more of that run when you were describing that crawl, walk, run. And for that crawl, uh, I think those NTIA things are, are an excellent starting point. Yeah, and another thing just to add to that, and Matt kind of alluded to it, um, and it's, it's more in the run realm as well, but one of the most powerful things I've seen with SBOM is the ability to index your software versus known like vulnerability databases uh, and then understand, you know, just given this SBOM, we are uh, vulnerable to X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think things like CPEs, PERLs, uh, and then SWIDs are uh, very necessary uh, if, if they can be added to an SBOM, that way you can take it that additional step further and start to identify vulnerabilities associated with those things. So I want to pick you up um, on, on the thing you just said a minute ago, Matthew, about um, uh, you know, the CBOM. So I'm, I'm with you, actually, if I'm honest, and as, I, as I've already written, I'm a big supporter of the, the SBOM um, initiatives because I think they're a good start. I think it's a better than nothing. It, it brings about the mindset of transparency and integrity being part of security and not just sort of magic beans and bulletproof perimeters. So it's definitely better than that. But it doesn't work on its own. We shouldn't pretend it works on its own. And a lot of folks um, in who are sort of either demurring or outright um, denouncing S-bombs are saying it's not good enough. So do we... Yeah, I don't think knowing what the software is works until you know what the chipset is. There's plenty of software out there that works perfectly well on one ARM chipset and will run and is totally vulnerable on another chipset. And so, yeah, what do you do? You need to know, you need to know those details. But do you think, on balance, implementing SBOM is a good start? It is a crawl, walk, run. Or you know, does anybody here think it's a distraction? Do we think it's actually going the wrong way? Should we just force everybody to go full on CBOM because that's just right? And how do, how do we actually, how do we make this thing happen? 
Yeah. Um, so I'll just start off with this. Um, I think it is positive. I think it is good. Um, I, I think that this is definitely going to be one of the things where particular industries are going to be the like the main drivers at first, and they're going to be the ones that have to make the heavy investments. It's going to be most expensive to them. Uh, and I think those industries are, are probably going to be the ones that are more connected with the potential for danger to, to people or the environment in general. So things like medical devices, um, the energy sector, automobiles, uh, other things that can impact, uh, you know, health, life, and safety. Uh, and the, I think that those, that there are regulatory requirements that are starting to get pushed. There's guidance right now in some areas. Um, but uh, I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, we've looked at dozens and dozens of different types of SBOM tools and dozens and dozens of different ways of you know, holding this kind of data. But the, a lot of different systems have a lot of gaps and it's, it's nothing seems to you know, fulfill all of the requirements for even one industry right now, let alone what the various ones are going to be for lots of different industries. So um, I don't see it as a distraction. I see it as something very necessary, but it is going to be very painful for certain organizations early on. Unfortunately, I think that, you know, Log4J popularized something that, you know, we already knew five, 10 years ago in cybersecurity, which was a, you know, a huge tidal wave, you know, building up in the ocean and ready to crash on shore and wreak havoc. Um, you know, I definitely think it's necessary. I, I do, I guess, um, I'm a little bit jaded by how things run in cybersecurity. So, you know, I think that most of change will happen through regulatory and, and compliance pushes. However, I think to the point made before, I think there's certain industries are going to just naturally embrace this because they have to, right? They have to survive. If you're manufacturing, um, you know, wearables or injectables or implantables, and there's, you know, firmware and all those things, right? And it could actually end a patient's life. So in the healthcare industry, uh, it's going to be a non-negotiable. In military and um you know, transportation, aviation, those sort of things that, that there's, if there's a critical mistake and something, you know, is, gets compromised, especially now more and more as we're seeing rising geopolitical themes and um, attacks, you know, just in, in the United States are still investigating what's happening in terms of physical attacks that are being tied to geopolitical, you know, uh, campaigns and things like that for the, the grid and energy providers. So I think that what I would like to see is, entities that take the responsibility and ownership of saying, I don't want to spend more money later. I don't want to get a you know, letter from a regulatory three-letter agency or an international body. Um, I also don't want to have to do a product image rebuild if, the, if, if my own log4j happens, right? And I lose confidence in my uh, list of customers. What I would like to see is that someone listening to this podcast that's behind product development and engineering really begin to think about, okay, who do I lean on? Do I bring in the people to be able to help me build in SBOM practices within my SDLC? Great. Or do where do I have my uh, partners that I need to depend on so that they can help me build, test, release, you know, and configure better? Um, the last thing I'll mention is that, you know, like with many things in security, nothing's a, a, a one-stop shop or n there's no silver bullet. 
what's complicated with building a secure bill of materials is that there's so many changes in product life cycles. And when you're manufacturing software or appliances or hardware, you have, you know, obviously your planning stage. And then there you can begin to have some level of requirements or what, what's going to go in, what types of, you know, platforms are we going to align with? With that knowledge, you may have some insight in terms of like what dependencies you may have. But even then, as you go beyond the build, test and release stage, you still have a configuration stage where your environment is changing. Maybe you deprecate one library and you you bring in another because of functional abilities. Maybe it's improving your performance. Maybe it's improving other things. And then you swap out components and the next thing you know, you don't reintroduce, you know, being able to evaluate the um, software bill of materials. So it's challenging. You know, a lot of people think that, oh, SBOM's easy. Let me just fire up this yet another tool. I think in the United States, you know, a lot of American-based companies are very tool happy. I'm going to solve this problem with a tool. It did SBOM checkbox. And that's such a false sense of security. I think other going back to the, the, the process notions that we've all talked about on this, you know, this, this, this panel here, there has to be a good process, right? And, and there's components of understanding what's going into software as you develop, as you build, as you configure, as you maintain. And I think those are the things that shouldn't get away from us. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point because a lot of people are looking for tools. A lot of the chatter that I see, even you know, the setup when we were invited to do this thing, the question was, where are the tools? Um, maybe that's the big takeaway, right? Don't wait for tools. The tools will exist if they support and represent a good process. And actually, if you strip it all back, the only thing that we're trying to do here, I think, the only thing I'm trying to do, uh, is to guarantee the provenance, or at least make visible the provenance of everything that's coming into your estate. And that's not a tool question. It's, you know, you've got to know which questions you're answer, asking before a tool can answer them. But what you really need to know is, how was this software built? To exactly your point, Tony, you know, it's very important to, uh, to know not just this thing is signed, so I've got a binary and it's signed, so it definitely came from my vendor. No, I need to know that it was properly security reviewed. I need to know that they followed their own processes so that if I then build it into my product, um, a different company, I've got different databases, I don't have their certifications, how do I know that came from the right place and how do I prove that I took the right steps to validate it? That doesn't need new tools. We've got tools to do that. We have SDLC, as we've said, for, for software. We've got ISO and common criteria processes for secure products. Um, that, that really is the takeaway from this. Don't get, don't get blinded by SBOM and generation tool. Just think about how you can prove the provenance and integrity of what you're giving out to other people, what you're bringing in from other people. And then we'll have that kind of visibility and the, the ability to take control of your own risk um, that's, that's missing today from these opaque processes. Absolutely. Well, so, um, I know we, we covered a lot of different things. Any, you guys want to dip into closing thoughts, you know, for the audience in terms of, uh, key takeaways and getting started or sustaining as part of an SBOM process or program. One thing that I'll mention, uh, just briefly is I think that, this is very much a case of perfection is the enemy of progress. Um, I, I, as you were both just saying, we, you, don't know, you don't need to know how to do this perfectly or get everything right immediately to start making progress on this and that will have meaningful impact 
in, in not just your products, you know, not just your sector, but I mean, in general for the world, for the place that you sell your products and, and how they're used and where they're used, um, uh, I think it can have a very, very broad impact. So I think that even if organizations, if you don't have any kind of regulatory, uh, you know, three-letter agency looking down your neck, um, you should still be looking at doing these kinds of things, getting these types of things integrated. Uh, if you if you make uh, IDEs, you know, you should be, uh, you know, trying to figure out how can I help uh, SBOM in the future. If you are uh, someone who runs Scrum or if you're somebody who is uh, a developer or a teacher, SBOM should be one of the things in your tool belt that you talk about, make people aware of. So I think that it is, it's a very, very broad area of things that needs to start to encompass SBOM uh, because uh, uh, even though you know I don't have necessarily some medical device implanted in me, um, I've worked in IT and I know what it's like to pull all-nighters because of things like Log4j. Uh, you know, it impacts a broader audience. <laughs> so um, I, I think we, we want to make sure that it's it's better understood that it's it's everybody needs to kind of be helping with this. So I would make it be more comfortable with sharing. I think this is a this is a big mindset issue that needs to be overcome. Security historically, for whatever reason, perfectly good reasons, but historically it's been all about keeping all your data in your little silo and keeping everybody else out of your little castle, uh, what we commonly call perimeter security. Um, and one thing that we've learned is that, well, there are no perimeters. There never really were any, but it used to work. It was a good approximation. But these days, uh, for all kinds of reasons, we're moving to perimeter perimeterless models, um, we're moving towards zero trust architectures. Again, that might sound like a scary buzzword. It really isn't. It's just sensible engineering. Um, so the the thing that re the, the whatever the bonus that you can get out of SBOM and the build process transparency is that actually sharing is good. If you assume that actually everything is compromised and you could be under attack at any minute from anywhere then why not concentrate your some of your security spending and effort, at the very least, on making better friends with the people who are your friends? Share threat intelligence with your suppliers. Share build intelligence with your customers, because you guys are a team on the good side. You should be pairing up and pooling knowledge just the same as the bad guys do when they're coming to attack you. And that's the real mindset you need to have when you think about why is SBOM important. It's because it's the first stage of creating a team sport of defense and not everybody trying to do it themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I'm glad you, you called out because I, I think some of the hesitation, too, is to, um, you know, essentially hand over or produce a roadmap for how to exploit your software. So there's a, a built in uh, hesitance to, to doing that. But like you said, I mean, the I think Log4j is a great example of, you know, this this zero day happens and immediately we know that we're impacted and we need to address it now and where to address it. So I think it's a case of, you know, the good drastically outweighs the bad here and knowing more is the only way that we're going to get to a point where uh, we're all producing you know better better software better products uh, from a cybersecurity perspective yeah my, my key takeaway just for the audience listening out there is actually you know one thing I haven't talked too much during this call is really around you know maybe building an application threat model for your product or environment so that you first understand what is the model of threats that are going to bring your product down. Right. 
And every product is different. It depends on the industry that it might be in. It depends on the information that it's handling. Um, there's so many factors that inherently give some level of threat, uh, uh, heightened alert or deprecated, you know, importance to an overall application threat model. Um, of course, you can go about it by simply trying to find everything that you're running. A threat model isn't going to say, don't worry about some things that are within your bill of materials that are being shipped and, and ignore the rest. That's not what it's saying. However, if you're going to crawl, walk, run, you may want to focus on, for example, if you're in the energy sector and you know that you have software IoT components that are coming into your environment that are helping you to manage infrastructure, then you know continuity is king within your, your domain, right? Within that industry. So maybe look at the components, obviously identifying the components that are within your supply chain dependencies of you know, uh, hardware that you're acquiring or software that you're acquiring. Understanding, you know, first and foremost, what are the things that could lead to persistence, that could lead to denial of service, you know, for the overall trust model that is allowed within your, your, your application threat model. I think that's really important. It's a strategic way to look at, you know, things. Um, and, and, and But it puts a nice little wrapper around the, the practical aspect of trying to understand what am I running? And, you know, like it's been said before, you, you don't have to go full hog with some of the latest commercial tools. There's a lot of native capabilities, even native processes that you might be running within a very large organization. You know, asset management, configuration management um, might give width to some of the things that you're already running within your environment. Um, from a software development standpoint as well, you know, obviously looking at plugins, you know, oftentimes forgot, you know, plugins, you know, kind of get forgotten. And we're all thinking about something that runs a daemon or a binary that gets, you know, that, that gets uh, started. But being able to, you know, look holistically at your application, and this is one of the benefits of like data flow diagramming, having multiple participants in application threat modeling, not just developers, but also architects, but also engineers, um, to be able to come to the table and say, this is what my world looks like when what I'm running. I think that's very important. And then last but not least, I would like to just uh, say kind of like a call to, to proper product stewardship out there. Uh, don't let three-letter agencies, you know, dictate your product strategy. Take control, understand what you're running, control the madness that could happen by being, you know, dragged through the mud by not having the right <clears throat> introspection on, on, on supply chain management. Um, so take that responsibility beforehand, you're going to come up, uh, you know, you're, you're going to come out of it a lot better. So much so that even if a company that takes that level of strategy up front gets compromised, um, we all know through in cybersecurity that once the lawyers get involved and the insurance companies get involved and they kind of, you know, peel back the onion and see who did what, when and how, they're going to look to see and try to blame. But if you took a stance to encompass you know, proper supply chain, uh, security bill materials management within your processes, then it's, it's a whole different type of outcome that happens. But those are some, some key takeaways and uh, hopefully it's helpful. Yeah. Who did what when? Great phrase. That's what, that's what everybody needs to know. Thank you for listening to this episode and a big thank you to our guests, Matthew, Caleb, Tony and John for sharing their expertise with us. We look forward to bringing you more episodes of Cyber Experts this year. 
Make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast on Twitter and LinkedIn for further updates. This podcast is brought to you by Crest, an international not-for-profit membership body representing the global cybersecurity industry.